This is Action Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. Many may be familiar with what a brain injury can do to our use of language, but what about our ability to listen? In recognition of Brain Injury Awareness Month, you're listening to an encore publication of a conversation from last year in which guests joined the podcast to discuss how a blow to the head can result in difficulty in hearing and listening. First, audiologist Gail Whitelaw joins the podcast to discuss what clinicians may want to consider if they're assessing or treating a person who's had a TBI. She tells the story of one patient who acquired a brain injury during the Boston Marathon bombing, and this patient's long road to receiving the hearing care she needed. Plus, author and researcher Nina Kraus takes us into the brain to explain what she's learning about how TBIs can affect the brain's ability to make sense of the sound in our lives. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Get unlimited access to ASHA's catalog of CE courses for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. Gail Whitelaw is a past president of the American Academy of Audiology, a clinical associate professor at Ohio State University and director of the OSU Speech-Language Hearing Clinic. It's in that role Gail sees patients who have recently experienced TBIs. I spoke with Gail to address what audiologists should consider if they're assessing or treating a person who's had a TBI, and I asked her how often she sees patients in this situation. In my practice, I see patients who've had a TBI at least two or three or four a week of these folks. We have a pretty significant referral stream, and it's really easy for audiologists, if they're interested in seeing this population, to see them because of the fact that concussion and TBI are growing both in pediatrics and adults, and so I see them regularly. You said they're growing. What what would be responsible for that growth? Well, I think, first of all, we know that concussion care is different than it was, say, 15, 20 years ago, that we're much more aware of concussions, especially sports-related injuries. We also see people who have had concussion care or traumatic brain injury care that are having better outcomes because we do have better health care than we did, say, 20, 30 years ago. But we also have greater awareness. You know, one of the things that benefits us in both speech pathology and audiology is our role in interprofessional practice. And when we are linked with, say, occupational therapists or physical therapists who see TBI patients, or in my world, physical medicine and rehabilitation physicians or neurologists, it brings a lot more access to us. So maybe those patients were always there, but they're easier for us to access as part of a team. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the team approach to addressing TBI. We've had conversations on this podcast in the past about how SLPs might address this subject. But in the realm of hearing and audiology, what kind of risks do TBIs present? Sure. From an audiology perspective, there are really four different things to take a look at. One is the one that audiologists have thought about historically, which is what I would call the low-hanging fruit, that somebody has a traumatic brain injury and they develop a hearing loss because of that, maybe a temporal bone fracture. Those are pretty easy to find, and sometimes, depending on the type of fracture, they also resolve. The things to me that are much more difficult to take a look at are the more subtle things. One of those things is what audiologists have historically called auditory processing disorder. But in the literature, we're seeing more 
different descriptions, such as hearing difficulty, HD, or functional hearing loss, or subclinical hearing loss. So these people will complain that they've had issues with their hearing, but they have normal audiograms. And then there's also vestibular imbalance issues, which are huge in this population, and also tinnitus. I know that a lot of patients complain about tinnitus in terms of it impacts them in being annoyed and having anxiety and depression, but tinnitus also has a role in listening. And if we listen to our patients, they will talk about that. So those four things are four things that we would commonly see in people who have had a traumatic brain injury. I want to focus on one thing you said. You know, during assessment, the audiogram can be an audiologist's best friend, but you're saying that maybe the needs of a patient with a TBI, those needs may not register on the audiogram. But why is that? Well, I think that we have to look at one of my favorite, I guess, schematics of that, which is something called Erber's hierarchy. And Norm Erber talks about the fact that detection is just really the tip of the iceberg. And so audiograms are great at looking at detection thresholds, but they don't really look at complex listening issues such as speech and noise, temporal processing issues, working memory. And we really have to tax the system to do that. And I know many audiologists say that they do this, if we look at some of the research, this is in the scope of practice of audiology, both of ASHA and of AAA. It's a standard of care that is recognized and recommended to us, but apparently only about 15 to 20% of audiologists actually do speech and noise testing. So someone can have a very normal audiogram and not demonstrate any difficulties that they're reporting. So we think we have to look beyond that and look at the complexity. And there's lots of ways to do that, but speech and noise would be one of the first ways that we would do that. I can also imagine that in the days after a TBI, uh, that can be a very stressful time in someone's life. Is that something that you're considering when you're seeing these patients? Absolutely. I have the, I guess, the blessing and the curse of seeing people often after they've been hospitalized, say, in, even in the ER, but they've been hospitalized, say, at a rehab hospital, and then they come to us, or they've had medical treatment, and then they come to us. And sometimes they're much more relaxed than they were when they first had the, it's become a little bit part of their life, and they know how to cope with it a little bit more. But I will also say it's not uncommon for people who first have a TBI to have a big adrenaline rush and they really do okay for the first week or two. And after a few weeks, they start to notice the deficit areas that they have. And it's not just hearing, it can be vision, it can be migraines, it can be balance, as I mentioned before. It can be a lot of different things. And they often have anxiety and depression and one of my favorite things, and I think it's probably most audiologists' favorite things, is that we don't focus on ears. We focus on human beings. And these are human beings with complex presentations. They have complex listening issues, but they also have complex presentations because of the TBI. I think maybe in the interest of trying to highlight the human side behind what we're discussing today, uh, is there a patient story that maybe comes to mind? 
Yeah, I have a million patient stories, unfortunately, but I would like to tell one that I have used as a case presentation, and I have her permission to talk about it. She was in the Boston Marathon bombing. She was a runner and a physical therapist and a philanthropist. She had her own business where she was doing angel investing, and a really cool 33-year-old woman who, as she crossed the finish line at the Boston Marathon, the first bomb went off and she was knocked to the ground and believed to have a traumatic brain injury at that point in time. And when she got up and tried to go over to the knoll where her friends were, the second bomb went off. And then we're not sure if she was knocked down by that bomb or if a police officer who was trying to protect her threw his jacket over her and her head hit the ground again. She went back to work about three months later and couldn't do her job very well. And her business partner said to her, something's wrong with your hearing. And she said, oh, no, you know, I just had this little bump on my head. And the more she started to talk to friends and to her husband, she realized she wasn't hearing well anymore, that situations that didn't bother her in the past, like listening and noise, became really problematic. And sadly, she was seen by seven of our colleagues who all told her that it was in her head. She would go and say, I can't hear a noise. And this sounds like I'm a backseat quarterback, and it's not fair because I'm hearing it from her perspective. But she told audiologists she couldn't hear in noisy environments, and not one of us tested her in noise. She ended up meeting a mutual friend of mine, and hers now, who is an audiologist in the area where she lives. And he called me and said, you need to see this woman. And when I met her, she was very angry because she had told seven of our colleagues and some ENTs that she was having difficulty listening and noise. And they kept telling her she had normal hearing and that she it was all in her head and she had to let this go. And why was she the way she was? And maybe she had PTSD, which by the way, she did have PTSD that had been diagnosed. So we decided to do some things with her, including some auditory training with an amazing speech pathologist who worked in her area that I had done a presentation with. And we decided to fit her with hearing aids and do some other kinds of oral rehabilitation and also accommodations in her workplace. And she had an amazing recovery in the area of audition. She uses a remote microphone and still uses hearing aids to this day and finds it very, very beneficial. And there's a great article from 2019 by Doug Beck and Jeff Danauer where they talk about patients like her and they call it the happy talk that audiologists like to say is that when someone comes in and says, I have a problem, we show them their audiogram and we say, good news, your hearing is normal. And that's the happy talk that makes us feel comfortable because we're comfortable with the audiogram. But for many of these patients, they're going to continue to shop until they talk to somebody who will actually listen to what their complaints are. I think as audiologists, we have a great opportunity and a great responsibility to listen to these folks early on. 
So I'm hearing you say one big takeaway from this story in particular is that it highlights the importance of listening to patients. If they say that they're experiencing something, there's a reason they've come through the doors. And even if it doesn't show up on the audiogram, there may be something to find elsewhere. Let's say the doors to the clinic open, in walks a new patient, they recently had a TBI. What else do you think audiologists might want to consider? I think we need to talk about the bigger picture. Executive functioning is something that psychologists often talk about, but we have a pretty important role in executive function. How do people take all their sensory information and combine it? It takes a lot of working memory to do some of these things. It takes a lot of cognitive, your cognitive processing is pretty involved. And we have to be, I guess, bold enough to look at the big picture with patients and not just focus on the ears. And that includes building a network so that when a patient walks in our door, we know who we might refer to in our network. So, you know, I think part of it is us bringing our audiology skills, but also bringing our network of providers and being part of that network is really, really critical for a patient as they walk through the door. We've talked a lot about looking at the whole patient and the importance of interprofessional practice. On a personal level, um, the place that I feel like we often see moments of mild traumatic brain injuries of concussions is on TV during live sports or elsewhere. When you see something like that, whether it's in a sports game or uh, somewhere else, I wonder if a lot of people are thinking about hearing balance and tinnitus and if that's the first thing that your mind goes to or if you are thinking um, uh, elsewhere. My mind goes there because I think it's so easily overlooked, but I've been really involved in the traumatic brain injury community for more than two decades. And it's interesting to me because the layperson still thinks you get a concussion. So you get this little bump on your head. And if you're not knocked out, you're just fine. Our heads aren't very good protection from a lot of that. And I think it's really important to think about, you know, what kinds of things might be overlooked. In, say, for example, in the ER, they're looking for gross signs of pathology. So things they might see on an MRI or a CT. That doesn't mean that just because those things aren't there, that there's not an injury that exists. Um, This patient this afternoon was telling me that she had to ask for OTPT and speech services of a physician last year. And the physician said to her, and her issues are language processing, following directions, word finding, very common after a TBI. The physician said to her, well, I think you talk just fine. And so I I think when I see those kinds of opportunities, they're very traumatic for the person, but they're also an opportunity for us to educate other professionals about what we do and what we might contribute and how we might influence that person's quality of life. Many people don't even end up in an ER afterwards. It's not until a few weeks or maybe a month afterwards that they end up at a physician with things that they're noticing, can't hear well in background noise, confusion. Some people even have sound tolerance problems as part of their recovery from traumatic brain injury. So it affects them going into places like a grocery store or to a restaurant or to a meeting at work or as a child in school. So I think that 
when I see those things, I always think, oh, please let them have a good recovery and let them have a great TBI team. Gail Whitelaw, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Gail says, when it comes to quality of life, there's so much that can be done for this patient population. And she says changing people's quality of life, that's the reason she became an audiologist. In just a moment, we'll be back with a researcher who's working with Division I athletes to look at the effects of TBIs on our ability to listen and hear. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Earn ASHA CEUs and stay current with the ASHA Learning Pass by accessing ASHA's comprehensive catalog of CE courses for one convenient annual fee. Choose from more than 150 audiology-related courses. Learn more at asha.org slash learningpass. In her book, Of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World, author Nina Krauss writes about how we make sense of the sounds in our lives. And in a chapter dedicated to athletes and TBIs, she looks at disruptions in our brain's ability to process sound. Nina and her auditory neuroscience lab at Northwestern University are working with hundreds of athletes to study the effects of brain injuries on our ability to hear and listen. Her lab is called Brain Volts, and it has many special focus areas, including music, aging, bilingualism, and, relevant to today's episode, concussions or mild traumatic brain injuries. I spoke with Nina about how brain injuries can disrupt how we hear the world. We begin the conversation by talking about her lab, Brain Volts. I like to think rather holistically, everything that we do has to do with sound and the brain. So even though the topics are different, it tells us how pervasive and how important sound and sound processing in the brain is for so many activities, so many things that we find important in life. One of the reasons that I wrote of Sound Mind is because I really realize as I talk to people that they're really interested in sound and in communication and in everything that any listener of this podcast at ASHA would be interested in. And often they don't realize how, how important sound and communication is and what happens when, when, when that breaks down. And because it's so pervasive, something like getting a head injury can affect sound processing. Now, you know, why would that be? It, this is because the sound mind or the hearing brain is vast and it engages what we know, so how we think, our attention, our memory. It engages how we put together information from our, all of our senses. It engages how we feel and how we move. So all of these aspects are part of hearing and are part of the sound mind. So now as we move towards concussion and we start thinking about, well, what are some of the complaints that people have when they get hit in the head? And well, first of all, making sense of sound is one of the hardest jobs that we ask our brain to do. You can imagine that getting hit in the head is going to disrupt this very, very precise timing and analysis that the brain has to do with a complex signal like sound. And because hearing engages how we think, often someone who sustains a concussion has difficulty focusing. They have difficulty 
understanding speech and noise. And they are hypersensitive to sound. So we were fortunate to have, we have a, a grant that is funded by the National Institutes of Health. We have a five-year grant where we are studying all of our 500 Big Ten athletes at Northwestern University. We are studying the athletes from all sports, males and females, and we measure the brain's response to sound before and after every season. And if an athlete sustains a concussion, then we will measure their brain responses immediately after the concussion and then for at weekly intervals for, for quite a long time. Now, what do I mean by measuring the brain's response to sound? You know that as I'm talking to you now, the neurons in your brain that respond to sound are, are picking up that electricity, and we can measure that electricity with scalp electrodes. So we simply deliver sounds via earbuds and uh, produce these electrical responses in the brain, and we can pick them up. And a particular response that we have been looking at is, it's called the frequency following response, or the FFR. One of the reasons that we find that it is really useful in head injury is because it captures the brain's response to sound with tremendous precision. So much precision that actually the sound wave and the brain wave resemble each other. And you can take the brain wave and play it out through a speaker and it actually sounds, it resembles the, the sound wave. And what we have discovered is, in fact, that concussion can disrupt the hearing brain. And we see this in the brain's response, in particular to the fundamental frequency of sound, which is a very important cue for grouping auditory objects, for grouping a speaker, for example, and it helps us when we're trying to follow a speaker talking in a noisy place. We really latch on to that fundamental frequency. One of the things that we can do when we measure the frequency following response is, um, you know, sound has, has many ingredients like pitch and timing, timbre, harmonics, the fundamental frequency phase. And we can look at all of those things and really get a sense of what is it that is getting disrupted with a concussion. And so we can really say that in particular, the, the fundamental frequency is disrupted and consequently the fidelity of the response to sound becomes impaired. I want to tell you one more finding, which is, so you know, on, on the one hand, concussion disrupts the hearing brain. And we really have a way now of assessing this. And I think it's, it's, it's a real important role for the hearing and speech specialists to come into this arena. But being physically active is one of the best things you can do for your brain. Because we are recording these brain responses from elite athletes, we also are able to see, well, in, in what ways, if you don't get a concussion, does being 
physically active, how does that help your processing of your environment? How does that help your processing of sound? And we find, in fact, that the brain's response to sound uh, actually is more precise in these athletes. We find that there is less neural noise in the background in these athletes. So we see that healthy athletes have extremely quiet brains. So you can imagine that they are able to make sense of what they're hearing around them better, really actually any sensory event, because there is less neural background activity. You call this the quiet brain in your book. I'm wondering, is this similar to when people talk about cognitive load, uh, when people are saying they have a lot on their mind and so it's hard to concentrate? Is this a similar phenomenon? It could very well be. What we have seen and others have reported that times when there is excessive neural noise is in kids who are raised in poverty, kids who have had linguistic deprivation, not a lot of linguistic sound stimulation, and also with aging, there is increased neural noise. And so having less neural noise would seem to be a good thing. And if you just think of it from a signal-to-noise standpoint, the electrical activity in response to whatever is going on in the environment in the brain is going to stand out because it won't be buried in the noise. You write about athletes and concussions. In your book, Upsound Mind, you write, quote, pitch, timing, and harmonics seem to arrange themselves systematically with the stage of head injury, end quote. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. After an, an individual receives a brain injury, I mean, we have to always remember that brain injuries are, are going to be different. Different brains are, are different from the beginning and also just you know, the, the intensity of the impact, where the person was hit. It's so wonderful to be able to have some way of accessing brain health physiologically because if you look at a concussed brain on imaging, unless there's a bleed or something really severe happening, which fortunately doesn't happen that often, you really won't see a disruption on imaging with a concussion. But what we can see is that, you know, because of these different ingredients, the pitch, timing, timbre of sound, we can see that when at the very acute stage, more of these sound ingredients are disrupted. And the one that really seems to stay longer over time is this fundamental frequency, which is a very important cue for voice pitch. So, you know, I have a certain pitch to my voice and you do. Um, and you know, anybody listening to you and me will know who's speaking, largely based on the cues that we're getting from the fundamental frequency. And so that is the part that, that over time seems to be hardest hit. But at the beginning, a number of the ingredients 
can be disrupted all at once. I spoke with Gail Whitelaw. She told me the story of a woman who experienced a brain injury. She was participating in the Boston Marathon uh, the year of the bombing, uh, and that's where she experienced the brain injury. And she talked about how that person had trouble finding the care they needed because they were experiencing difficulty with listening or with hearing. And I'm just wondering, is this something that you think healthcare providers, uh, whether that means that they're referring to an audiologist or an audiologist themselves, is this something that you think that there needs to be more awareness around? Absolutely. I'm so glad that you asked this question because, first of all, there is very little awareness from any community, be it the sports community and even um, the hearing and speech community, that hearing can be disrupted, that communication can be disrupted following a concussion, because it just has not been an area that people have paid that much attention to. But now, as we are really understanding that, in fact, people have all kinds of difficulty processing sound, and clearly their brain's response to sound can be vastly disrupted we are hoping, and, and, and you know, I think part of uh, the, the reason that I, I wrote Of Sound Mind was to address your question. It, it's a call to action. It is a call to have people understand that hearing and sound and our sound mind is just so much vaster than most people think it is. Nina Krauss, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Find the link to Nina's lab, Brain Volts, on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org slash podcast. Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Asha Learning Pass. Access more than 150 audiology courses for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices.